Never give up. It's more than just positive thinking for Diana Nyad. Diana set a long-distance open-water swimming record by swimming for 53 hours from Cuba to Florida in 2013. That's 111 miles. And she was 64 years old when she did it. She joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about the obstacles she had to overcome and how she finally set the world record and became the first person to ever swim across the shark-filled waters between Florida and Cuba. Her message? Young or old, we can reach our dreams. Diana, thanks for being with us. Rick, my pleasure. Thank you very much. What a way to travel. You know, I had a French mother. <laughs> and, you know, I started this uh, this voyage, shall we say, this journey from Cuba to Florida when I was young in my 20s. And my mother used to say, you know, I, I don't know. I, I can get you a plane ticket. You don't <laughs> need to swim. Although, So that's been the constant joke, you know, all through oh, the years. Oh, man. A lot of us have, you know, swum a mile in a pool. 111 miles with currents and with sun and with dehydration. And it's just mind-boggling. Now, as I was reading through your book, I, I thought, you know, you must have had a lot of time to, to think as you prepared and, and finally as, as land came into sight and, and you're about to step ashore on dry land in Florida. What was your message to the crowd who gathered to greet you when you finally accomplished this? You know, the, the humor of it is that I, I will admit to you that in all those solitary hours of training, and, and then, of course, you know, I had tried it four times before, and each time was a, a long, long number of hours in the water. One time, 51 hours, another time, 48 hours, etc. And I often, just to, you know, keep my mind busy, was uh, sort of ego-tripping on what would be the oration, <laughs> what would be the, the sweet poetry I would utter when I finally reached, it's kind of like the Greeks, you know, the, that <laughs> other shore, but it didn't, Rick, it wasn't like that. I, I was dazed, both physically and emotionally. I had never thought of, though they were simple words, but I had never planned them, rehearsed them, thought of them ahead of time, and I just... I, there were people weeping because they felt their own lives. They watched someone and a team who just refused to give up. And I just stood there and said, barely able to speak, you know, with the swollen mouth, et cetera, and said, yeah. I've got three things to say. One, never, ever give up. And there was a roaring of applause <laughs> like that. Yeah, that's what we want to hear. And the second was you're never too old to chase your dreams. And isn't it the truth? And the third was, it looks, and I was going down at that point. I've heard, I've seen that video. I barely got out the last word, but I said, <laughs> it looks like the most solitary endeavor in the world, but trust me, it takes a team. And when I said team, I kind of hit the floor at the <laughs> beach. That, that was the last word I had in me. That is so beautiful. And obviously when you read your book, the, the team was integral to the whole mm. experience. Oh, yes. Now, why the Cuba to Florida journey? Is, is that sort of the ultimate, uh, is that the Mount Everest of open ocean swimming or something? It is. It has been considered that. There, there are two factors to it. One is just the clear, you know, number of obstacles that are out there for a swimmer. I mean, clearly you can't swim a, a distance like this in the polar ice caps. But other than that, if you and I were to grab all the nautical charts of the Earth's surface and put them down in, in your studio across the floor, we couldn't find a more difficult swim, a more challenging swim with the number of obstacles. Vegas rated this swim at a 0.004% chance mm. of anyone making 
speaking of because you've got that huge raging Gulf Stream Mm -hmm. that is screeching to the east six times faster than your swim speed. You're trying to go to the north. Mm. Within that stream, you've got counterclockwise eddies, some of them a quarter mile across, some of them 25 miles across. Once you get into the arm of one of those swirling eddies, you're done. You you never get out unless you're in a boat or, Mm -hmm. or you get out on the boat and you quit. Then you've got the, you know, the raging seas that come up. You're out in a dead calm. Two minutes later, literally, a 60-mile-an-hour wind pops up because those winds come off Africa, Mm. and they come traveling across the Atlantic 6,000 miles. So I could go on and on. It's Mm. just a... It's a potpourri of difficulties for a swimmer, and it has been called the Mount Everest. Then on the other hand, what attracted me to it and many people is history, geography. You know, the reason people first swam across the English Channel, you know, they call it a blue jewel of a planet. We could pick a million hundred-mile distances or 21-mile distances here or there. The Hellespont is famous. You know, the Catalina Island swim is famous, but the English Channel back in 1875 when Captain Matthew Webb first swam it. That's his history between the British Isles and the continent of Europe. It's Charlemagne. It's the Battle of Hastings. <laughs> and, you know, in the end, it was World War II. It was, it was everything. And Cuba, I dare say, I don't think there's a more storied body of water on our planet today than that, you know, that stretch between Florida and that forbidden Bidden Island that since 1959 we have not been able to visit and they have not been able to come here. So that was clearly part of the draw for me was connecting our peoples. Before we leave the English Channel, how many miles is the English Channel? You know, it's unfortunate because when you do the English Channel, you swim quite a few miles. You're heading out toward the North Sea. You're heading back toward the Atlantic Ocean. You're traversing. But Uh. in all these swims, you only get to count point A to point B. Like in Cuba, my final swim was 110.86 miles. Uh Don't don't forget the point eight six. That's the part that'll kill you. But that's the way the crow flies. That's the way the crow flies, and that's what you count. You don't, you know, if you happen to have been swept off there for a while, or you yeah. went off course, and you spent many hours going east and west, you count exactly where you left the shore and when you touched the other shore. So, what would that crow fly in, in England to France? It's only counted as 21 miles. 21. So you did five times that. Oh, yeah. This is a... And believe me, I have respect for all the swims, yes. all the swims on the planet, but this is a, this is a different kettle of fish, Cuba. Yeah. And then what about the the political subtext? You, you swam from Cuba to Florida, not Florida to Cuba. Was there anything, any backstory about that? Well, part of the backstory is that I wanted to finish in my country. Mm-hmm. That was my home state, also of Florida. I grew up as a kid during the revolution, looking out over that water, saying, mm-hmm. "Where, where is it? Where is that forbidden, mystical land of Cuba? And then <laughs> there is the Gulf Stream. Uh, I dare say I, I don't even think a Michael Phelps could go against that stream. Oh, okay. So it always goes east, and occasionally you get a little axis of a bump up toward the northeast, but it never goes south. So you got current, you got wind, but also under the water, you got sharks and you got jellyfish. Now, I understand jellyfish almost killed you with one attempt. And then there's an asterisk with your accomplishment because you made this swim and and you have to qualify it by saying you did it without a shark cage. And that must make a, a difference. People before have done it with a shark cage. 
It is a big deal, and people from the sport understand it. For people outside the sport think, well, you know, you just wanted to be a, a badass and face the sharks face-to-face, but it really isn't about that. Whenever you're in a structure, like a big steel cage, you're safe, and I don't blame anybody for using a cage. I've used them in the past myself. But you don't want an asterisk next to your name, then you don't use a cage, because little eddies, even if you're going slowly, mm. that cage is bouncing along at about two miles miles an hour, Mm -hmm. which isn't a bad average for all those hours. And little eddies come swirling around the side. This is how Jack LaLanne moved the Queen Mary. Little eddies come around the side, and then those eddies come pushing up the back of the cage, and pretty soon the cage starts going twice, then three times, then four times your speed. So add that to your vector, and within a cage, you're swimming much faster than you do without the cage. Oh, so that's that's a real advantage. Yeah, it's a big advantage. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Diana Nyad. Her book is Find a Way, the inspiring story of one woman's pursuit of a lifelong dream. About her 111-mile swim through the treacherous waters from Cuba to Florida. Diana, you've done other big swims. You've swum around Manhattan, right? I did. You know, I was 25 years old and uh, never expected anything to come of it. I, I thought it was a, you know, a great adventure. I started off just with a a guy on a broken down, you know, fishing boat with a couple of friends of mine. By the end of the day, the New York Times and the BBC and the Tonight Show were all swarming around. It wound up being a big deal. And it it sort of launched my career. I had already been an ocean swimmer, but Manhattan, you know, they Hmm. say if if you make it there, you make it anywhere. Ah, And uh, Manhattan kind of made my career as an athlete. And that was about an eight hour swim, right? Yeah, it's a, just a little dip. I mean, you're, yeah. you know, you're, you're <laughs> off to a party that night. You're feeling pretty good. Yeah. Because I, I mean, when I read and saw the photographs of you after this well, 53 hour swim from Cuba to Florida, it is brutal. Now let's talk just about some of the reality of being out under the sun, in the salt water, nibbled at by jellyfish, all of that. You had quite a lot of gear on you just to be protected, didn't you? I mean, swimming is to be free. That's one of the anthems of a swimmer. But you had all that gear on. That must hamstring that experience a bit. It, it was a uh, hell to swim with. You know, when we say nibbled by jellyfish, it's, it's a bad verb, Rick, because <laughs> there are jellyfish, thousands of species of jellyfish, most of which are not pleasant. You know, nobody likes to go under the sting of a right. Portuguese man of war. But nobody, as far as I know, has ever died from any of those stings except for the box jellyfish. And there are actually many hundreds of species of that animal, too. But the particular box that now swarms between Cuba and Florida is deadly. Most people who have been touched by that tentacle die instantaneously. Most swimmers who have ever been touched by them and lived to tell the tale have said, never, ever am I going back in those waters. And so I decided to go back. And there are certain rules in marathon swimming that you can never use any flotation device. You can't use neoprene. You can't use fins. You can't hold on to a boat. You can't get out on the boat, et cetera, et cetera. But in order to protect life or death, Mm. in this case, with no hyperbole, I wore a thin, what they call a stinger suit. And you are allowed a stinger suit. And I wore uh, latex gloves, less very surgeons, latex gloves. They Mm -hmm. make swimming difficult. As you say, you want to be free. And it's already, imagine, difficult enough to swim for two plus days nonstop. 
Uh, but now, uh, during the night, every time dusk would come and all the way till dawn, I would have to, to make sure that that tentacle did not sting me again, as it did mm. in 2011, put on all this gear. And it was uh, it was tough to swim with. I just I couldn't wait for the morning. I would beg my head trainer, Bonnie, to for the moment. Is, is mm. it dawn enough yet for me to take this stuff off? Especially the mask. The mask was difficult to swim with. So the danger was after dark for the jellyfish? Yeah, that's when they swarm. They come up, they're they're photosensitive. So you you can find a box jellyfish occasionally in the daylight, but usually not. They die when they come up. They're like vampires. They die at sunrise. So they, uh, Mm -hmm. they stay under, and then they come up at night, and they start feeding. On a swim like this, it's 53 hours do you get a break on the boat? Uh, how oh, do you, no. You, you oh, can't no. touch the boat the whole time. No no sleeping. No, there's there's no sleeping. There's never touching the boat. You can't get out on the boat. It's done. I mean, if there is an immediate shark attack, if there's right. a true life or death emergency and you have officials on the boat with you right. who are not part of your right. team, they're independent observers, they will allow a, a short break if you're right. truly, you're being attacked. Right. Uh, and that would be true of the box jellyfish as well, but very short, just a few minutes and they feel you're out of danger, you're back in. Hydration, uh, eating, how did you take yeah, care you of all just, that? Yeah, you come over close to the boat, your trainers hand you either a camelback hose so that you can use all fours to tread water and take that down, an electrolyte liquid. Uh-huh. I'm usually taking about 700 calories an hour. Here's the thing. You can never take in the amount of fuel you're expending. So you are starting to feel cold. You're in the tropics. Hmm. That water, if you and I were to go on vacation down there and we dived in one day in the summer, you'd say, oh, my God, it's like a, it's like a bath. Hmm. But it isn't a bath because it's not 98.6 degrees. It's 82. Hmm. And after 30 hours, 40 hours, 50 hours, anything below 98.6, your body starts to travel toward that temperature and you start to feel cold and you go into hypothermia. So you try to eat, you try to drink, and now your stomach's upset. They call it the iron stomach. Who can last? Who can continue to take in calories when you're feeling very poorly? I I think my muscles would have gone beyond those 53 hours, but honestly, Hmm. I'm not sure my stomach could have taken in one more ounce of anything. Did you actually get seasick while swimming? Oh, yes. You're always seasick. I mean, you know, you're bobbing around. The wind whipped up on so that first night. So throwing up, literally. Yeah, yeah, you're vomiting, and uh, you, so you lose a lot. You know, <laughs> oh, I mean, it's, I, it sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? It's not, it? it's, not um, my kind of vacation. But, you know, the truth is, let me just say that there are times when you look up and see the four billion stars you can see literally above. You've read Stephen Hawking the night before. You have a sensation that you're swimming over the curvature of the earth. There's mm. a high mm. to being in that kind of shape and traveling across the ocean as well as your vomiting. You, you've got it all. You've got <laughs> it, it sounds all. like the whole package. Do you do the same stroke the whole time, or do you sure. vary it up? No, you're trying to go from A to B. There are other swims where there is not the Gulf Stream tugging you, right. and then, you know, it's like, who cares? You know, you yeah. go as slowly as you want. But you're doing a crawl stroke and a flutter yeah. kick? Oh, yeah. Crawl stroke with a six-beat kick. You're trying to go from A to B in as powerful a direct as way as you can. Give me a, a sense of... Um, the thing you thought of when you stepped on dry land was this is a team sport. Describe the flotilla that would be traveling with you across this stretch of water and the team. Well, just imagine if you had been in a oh helicopter, small plane, drone, and been following our flotilla across on any of the you know crossings, 
you would see only one set of arms. There's only one left arm and right arm that's coming out of the sea hundreds of thousands of times. But next to me, there are two kayaks. One is carrying a shark shield. The other's carrying an antenna. And one is way off to the right. One's behind me. And they're creating an elliptical field of electricity below me that most sharks are bothered by. Their sensitive sonar Mm. doesn't like to come in contact with that electricity. On the other hand, Mm -hmm. a shark is hungry, 50, 60 miles offshore, hasn't Mm. eaten in a week. They'll come (laughs) right through that electricity. So then if you were in your drone camera above and watching our flotilla, you'd see a couple of divers, especially at night, under me. They're they're looking. They don't have any fatal gear. We don't kill any animal on our watch, but they've got big pieces of PVC piping. If an animal comes up too close to me and thrashes around, my divers will bump them on their sensitive snouts, move them down, move them out, so they're the divers. The boat next to me is kind of the epicenter of the activity. That's where my personal handler team is, the medical team, the shark team, the jelly fish team, the navigation team, they're all on that boat. And believe it or not, even for 53 hours, they are always busy. They're in crisis. They're handling all kinds of nature elements. They're out ahead researching where they're trying to get, you know, everything we can to get us across. And then there are four boats that come along behind us and to the side that are kind of like the resting platform. So a couple of shark guys work hard for 90 minutes underwater against resistance. When they come up, they are fried. They go back to their boat. They relax. They get some food while another team goes under and works under me. And then the other guys come back in. So we've got a flotilla of five boats, 44 people. It's an expedition. It wow. truly is. And it's a, a team that knows how to work together, almost like a, in a pit stop in a, in a racetrack yeah, or something like very this. very much. They're in sync. And there's a, there's a chain of command, and uh, they all know what they're doing, and they handle emergencies, you know, medical, uh, navigation. It's a tight team, for sure. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Diana Nyad. I'm getting all caught up in this. Her book is Find a Way, and it tells the story of her epic swim, 111 miles from Cuba to Florida. You know, Diana, there must have been a lot of mind games your body was playing with you and great fatigue and boredom and uh, eurekas and uh, hallucinating. Can you talk just a second about that? I have a tremendous regard for all of Earth's extreme adventurers. If you tell me you've run across the Kalahari Desert in 124 degree heat, you have my respect. And the same goes for the people who trek across Antarctica, climb Annapurna, K2, all that. But the one difference might be, I don't know what it's like at the top of the world. I I haven't experienced, you know, altitude sickness, all that. But what's different for me is an extreme state of sensory deprivation. Your eyes aren't working well anymore. You've got fogged over goggles. You're turning your head once a second to the side. You, You don't see much of anything. Your ears, you've got this tight cap over your head trying to keep the heat in your head and you don't hear much either. So you are in the interior of your mind Mm -hmm. in a very short time. I've been kind of a fan of lay astrophysics my whole life since I've been a kid. And so I do, I read Hawking and, and others of the 
you know, the Cosmos writers the night before I do these swims. And there's no place. You and I could go out to dinner forever and talk about the majesty of the universe. But when you're out there on your own steam and you're you're in that inky water in the middle of the night and you look up and see the galaxy, you know, from that ocean that far from shore, you trip out on, you know, the Stephen Hawking that yes. you've read the night yes. before. So, and then you're in hallucinations. I thought I saw the Taj Mahal on that last successful <laughs> swim. It was there. I, I never questioned why it was floating over there, but I was enraptured by it uh. for a long time. Uh, so, yeah, your your mind is um, out there. I'm singing songs, trying to count, count log rhythms of numbers, uh, singing a playlist. Esther from Dallas has uh, emailed us, and she uh, says, you make all of us baby boomer women so proud. And I'm sure there's a lot of women that echo that thought. Uh, She asks, you know, what was your daily routine for for training? The training is what it's all about. And and I suppose, you know, many people have said it in different ways, but it's all about preparation. I I don't care whether you're, you know, a kid taking your SAT exam or, you know, you're you're preparing an astronaut, preparing to go into space for the first time. It's all about the no stone unturned preparation. And when we would go out to do a 14-hour swim for training, never, ever... If I come into the to the boat after a long day, maybe it's been a whipping wind. I haven't been in shape yet. 14 hours is going to be a tough day. If I come into the boat and it's only 13 hours and 58 minutes, who would care? We're the ones who make up the training schedule. I'm the one who makes it up. Who You know, isn't 1358 the same as 14? Well, no, it's not. <laughs> You know, it really isn't. I Once you start making it, it's like a life lesson. Once you start making concessions about anything, you'll next time you'll make a bigger concession and then a bigger one. And pretty soon you're, you don't even respect your goal anymore. So um, the work in the training was grueling. And frankly, the book, you know, the part I'm proudest most, I'm proud of that book. When mm-hmm. I pass a bookstore and I see it on a shelf, I say to myself, there's a true grit story, mm-hmm. and I, I got to live it out loud. Mm-hmm. But what I'm most proud of is the training log in the back. If you just want to flip that. through that, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it is badass, that <laughs> it's, training it's log, I tell you. Man. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Diana Nyad, and it's about her epic swim from Cuba to Florida. Her book tells the whole story in a, in a very intimate and inspirational way. It's called Find a Way. Diana, you went to Cuba a couple of years after your swim on Obama's historic trip with our president. What was that like? I did get to be part of the entourage, although everybody asked me if I got to fly on Air Force One, and I said, no, they, they almost made me swim over. That was about <laughs> the only way I could get there. Um, but actually, before that, uh, the year after the swim, actually a few months after, I was invited into the Oval Office. I'm a huge admirer of President Obama's, and he told me that he really did look at our swim as a gesture, as an early gesture of one person leaving one country and a, just a few hours later touching the shore of the other country and making a gesture of bringing our two nations together. And when I was in Havana with part of the uh, Obama entourage, I was sitting listening to Raul Castro's speech to the Cuban people. And I, I speak a pretty decent Spanish, but the Cubans speak very quickly. And he was talking to the Cubans, so he was speaking very quickly. President Castro was. And he was going, blah, 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 Diana Nayad. And I went, oh, I, 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 th- I thought I just heard my name. And the Cuban woman next to me said, yes, he, Raul Castro just said that if that woman, if that extraordinary athlete can swim across these shark-infested waters and make it to the other side, surely 
we can extend the olive branch and make it across those waters ourselves. So I'll tell you something. Our team is proud as punch to have been a tiny little moment of our nation's making a making, you know, the first steps of reconciliation toward each other. It's a beautiful metaphor. And I I can imagine Obama thinking this is a a beautiful example. And if you can swim it, we can do it. Uh, So congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. It means a lot. Diana, you you made a point to close your book with a quote from Henry David Thoreau. Uh, What you get by achieving your goals is not as important as what you become by achieving your goals. Why is that resonating with you? It was the whole point of the Cuba swim. You know, I did. You've mentioned during this interview that I, I did other swims. I was a distance open swimmer, but Cuba was never in that category. It wasn't some athletic event. It wasn't to set some record at all. It was about living life large. It's who am I? Am I the person I can have a high regard for? Am I a person who commits to a big dream that maybe is untouchable, maybe can never be done, but it's worth the journey of who I might discover within myself, of tapping every fiber of my potential? Yes, even if I had never made it to that destination, the journey was worthwhile. And mm. that's what Thoreau's referring to. Yes, yeah, some great things have come from the Cuba swim. I got a chance to write this memoir, blah, blah, blah. But it's not about that. Is I am a person who dreamed big, went out and chased that dream, you know, and, and would not give up on it. It's the old mm. Teddy Roosevelt thing. I'd rather dare greatly and fail than to sit on the sidelines and be the cold, timid soul who will never know success because he's not willing to know failure. That's that's what that Cuba swim represented to me, and that's why it's resonated with so many people. Nobody else is going to go swim from Cuba to Florida, but many people want to chase their dreams, and they know that just not giving up, not quitting is what's going to get them to the other side of whatever their dream is. There's so many people that can be inspired by that. My sister, who's you're in my generation, she's an Iditarod racer, and, and Iditarod oh. racers know that whether you win it or finish last or don't even finish but give it your all, you're a champion. That's such yeah. an inspiration. Yeah, I believe it. I do. Diana Nyad, what a great book, Find a Way, the inspiring story of one woman's pursuit of a lifelong dream. Several tries, 35 years, and you did it. Thanks so much for sharing your story. Rick, you are a pleasure to talk to. Thank you so much. Happy travels. You too. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.